Okay, don't be afraid. The book of Revelation is not designed to scare you. It's designed to give you hope. It's all about hope. It's all about discipleship. But most importantly, it is all about Jesus Christ. So we are so excited to offer these sermons on the book of Revelation. We hope you enjoy them. You know, Beth always thinks of the obvious illustration that I don't, so I'm grateful for that, Beth. Great job. Um, And it just highlights the point, it's almost like C.S. Lewis decided, I'm going to write a series of books to proclaim the gospel to people who might not hear it otherwise. Did a really good job. (laughs) So uh, last week, we saw Revelation 12, and we read the story about this woman, this child, and this dragon that hates both of them. And we learn that this dragon is a symbol, right? A symbol for evil that stands opposed to God, that stands opposed to everything God's about, his plan to redeem and restore creation. And we heard that because of the cross and the empty tomb, that we know that this dragon has already lost, right? You guys wait? Okay, good, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, look, right. If there's a time for amen, that... It's a really good time for it, okay? So, good. Just want to make sure you're awake. All right, so that's good news. We know that's good news. But there's bad news, too. And the bad news is that the dragon knows that he's lost. He knows that he's lost, and he's mad. And that's why we suffer evil today, because the dragon is on this desperate rampage, unleashing whatever evil it's got left. It's throwing the cosmic equivalent of a temper tantrum. And now sometimes a temper tantrum is not a huge deal. Kid gets over it. If you would have been with Jennifer and I yesterday in Hobby Lobby, you would have seen that sometimes temper tantrums really impact the entire store. I mean, I was this close to just giving the parents 10 bucks, just buy the kid the train. Like, let's, let's move on. <laughs> But the tantrum that the dragon is throwing, it has real world consequences for all of us. Because you see, if it can't defeat Jesus, which it knows it can't, but if it can't defeat Jesus, then it's at least going to try to hurt him. But the only way it can hurt Jesus is by attacking those that Jesus loves. Maybe even to the point that it could convince some of us to choose him over Jesus in the end. So today we come to Revelation 13. And in Revelation 13, John has more to tell us about evil and about its failed plans. So we're gonna hear this week and next, we're gonna hear probably the most important thing that we need to know about evil and about the way that it manipulates and controls us. Now remember, I've been telling you that Revelation is not about the end of the world. It's about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus in the midst of a world that is coming to its end. So this week and next, not only are we going to see exactly how the dragon attacks us, we're going to see why it's so hard to be a faithful disciple of Jesus in the midst of the world around us, in the midst of all the chaos. So today we're going to read from Revelation 13, uh, parts of it. Next week, we'll read the parts that we skipped this week. And like every week in this series, there's not enough time to talk about everything I'm going to read, but that's okay because not everything that we're going to read needs to be picked apart and explained. The whole thing needs to be experienced, understood, and applied. So 
Let's pray, and then we'll read Revelation 13. Father, be present with us as we read these strange words. Help us to look past the strangeness of the words to see how John, that you, through John, are guiding us, teaching us how to be your disciples, even when the world around us is giving us some very different messages. So give us clarity, give us open minds, open hearts, and open ears to hear what you would have to say to us today. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right, so let's read Revelation 13. At the bottom, you can see the exact verses that I'm gonna read again. We'll fill in the blanks when we come back to this again next week. So it says this, the dragon stood on the shore of the sea and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had 10 horns and seven heads with 10 crowns on its horns and each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. And this calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. If you look at the Greek translation, it says, let the person with wisdom figure out the number of the beast. The number is 666. As strange as all of this is, this is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God for it. So last week we met the dragon. This week we meet his two enforcers these two beasts. So we know that the dragon is on the attack, but we've learned he's not actually attacking us directly. He's going after us through two puppets, this beast from the sea and a beast from the earth. Now, these images come straight out of the Old Testament. They are two symbols of powerful institutions here on earth that evil uses to distract us, to deceive us, ultimately to draw us away from Jesus. In Job, they're referred to as Leviathan, the beast of the sea, and Behemoth, the beast from the earth. In Daniel 7, we hear an interpretation of a dream, and it actually goes deeper and draws some connections to what we just read in Revelation 13, and we'll talk more about that next week. But here's the important thing to start off. We have a dragon, the beast of the sea, and the beast of the earth. In Revelation 12 and 13, evil is represented to us in three persons. Does that sound familiar? It should. Here's how Daryl Johnson says it. He says, the dragon and two beasts make up a kind of trinity, a counterfeit trinity. Over and against the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the dragon, the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth. 
Evil mimics the true God, which is partly why evil can deceive. The description of the dragon in Revelation 12 mimics the description of God in Revelation 4. The description of the beast from the sea mimics the description of Jesus the lamb in Revelation 5. And the description of the beast from the earth mimics the description of the work of the Holy Spirit in Revelation 11. So this is the first thing that we need to understand about the nature of evil. It's not always what we might expect. Evil does not always come to us looking like a horror movie or like the satanic ritual nonsense that Hollywood has sold us. Evil doesn't always look evil. Sometimes it presents itself as almost good or as something that's partially true. You see, evil at its most powerful, it deceives us, ultimately by pretending to be God. And sometimes it's devastatingly convincing. Now look, again next week, we're gonna get into the specifics of those two beasts. But today, I wanna spend our time on the last verses of chapter 13. And for a Bible nerd like me, this is the fun part. (laughs) This is probably one of the most recognizable and sadly most misinterpreted images in the Revelation. So the mark of the beast, is that familiar language for all of you? Everybody's familiar with the language of the mark of the beast. Well, for the past 150 years, there has been a movement within Christianity, within the church, that has led to books like Left Behind, which I mentioned a few weeks ago. But there's been a movement that has said, we can use these verses to decode and unmask the specific leader that will become the Antichrist, this figure that this movement within Christianity believes will usher in the end of the world. There's a couple problems with this. First, as a spoiler alert, only Jesus ushers in the end of things. No one else has that authority. But what's really interesting Is that this word antichrist? Is that another word that you're all familiar with? But did you know that you're not familiar with it because of Revelation? Because the word antichrist never appears in the book of Revelation, not once. It's found three, maybe four times, depending on the translation, in two of John's letters, in 1st and 2nd John. Now we believe that it's the same John that wrote this, so that matters. But in Revelation itself, the word Antichrist never appears. In his letters, this is what John says about Antichrist, and this is important. He says, dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. He goes on to say, who is the liar? It's whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist denying the Father and the Son. And then he says this again in 2 John, I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. And any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Do you see what John's doing? See, in his letters, he's saying that anyone who denies the truth about Jesus, they are antichrist. Like, that's just literally what the word means. They're against Christ. You notice none of those were capitalized. They're not proper nouns. They're not titles. It's a position that someone takes. When you set yourself against the will of God, 
When you deny the truth about who Jesus is, when you refuse the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit, you are setting yourself anti-Christ, opposed to Christ. And anybody can do this. So you see, the mark of the beast is not a code to break that's gonna reveal to us that Vladimir Putin is the antichrist. He may be antichrist, but Revelation 13 isn't secretly revealing the identity of the antichrist. What we are given instead is a picture of what evil looks like, sometimes what it looks like when evil takes human form, but all to tell us the simple truth that no matter what form it takes, evil is a liar. And not only is it a liar, it's a failure. And it will always fail. So let's talk about the actual mark, the mark of the beast itself. I have really good news for you. Um, The mark of the beast is not a microchip that will be implanted in you secretly when you get the COVID vaccine. It's not. I'm not a scientist. I don't know what's in the vaccine. I will tell you, I'm gonna get it, and I really hope that you all will too, because that's how we get back together faster. But that aside, I can't tell you what's in it, but I can tell you what's not in it. A secret mark of the beast, because that's not the point. That idea that the mark would be given to us unwillingly through a vaccine, that was completely foreign to the guy who wrote the book. How many vaccines were being given out 2,000 years ago? None vaccines, that's right, none. Now, tattoos were familiar in his day, but it's not telling us that the mark of the beast is gonna be some tattoo that's gonna be placed on your forehead. None of that is biblical. It's fantastic, it's interesting to read, but it's not biblical. You see, you have to remember that evil is an imposter. It's a mimic, it's an ape. That means that the mark of the beast is going to be a counterfeit of the mark of Christ. In Revelation 7, we find that those who are in Christ are marked, were sealed by Jesus. So let me ask you, has Jesus secretly implanted a microchip in your hand? And has he tattooed his name on your forehead? No but he does seal us with his name. In scripture, when it talks about somebody's name, it's talking about their character, their nature, who they are, not just the label that they're given. So that tells us, if we are marked by the character and nature of Christ, that you will know that I have the mark of Christ by the way that I live. Does my life reveal to you the mind of Christ, his mark on my forehead? Does the way I live in the world give evidence that I am marked with the mark of Christ on my hands? Now, don't throw it at me, don't judge me, not perfectly, of course, (laughs) and not always. But is the fruit of his spirit growing in my life? Am I becoming more and more loving and peaceful and patient and kind? If these fruit are growing in me, if his character and nature are more and more evident in my life over time, then you have evidence that I have been marked by Jesus. And since evil is an imposter, his mark does the same thing. You will know that I am marked by the beast if you see his character or his nature in me. 
And of course, sometimes you will. But on the whole, I'm marked by the beast if my life is best described, not by the fruit of the spirit, but by what Galatians 5 calls the work of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, and there's a couple weird ones too that I left out. (laughs) And again, some of those, some of the time, yes, you will see those works in my life. That's why Jesus came, to redeem and restore and rescue us. But if those are the works that are growing in me rather than the fruit of his spirit, if those weeds are killing his fruit, then you will know which mark I bear. So ultimately, John is writing this to tell us that those who bear the mark of the beast, those who think like the beast have his mark on their forehead, those who act like the beast have his mark on their hands, they're gonna have a much easier time living in a broken world, living in a sinful world. That broken world will make more sense to someone who is marked in this way. They will have an easier time living in a broken world than someone who bears the mark of Christ. John is writing to those first Christians saying, it might even become unbearable for some of you to bear the mark of Jesus in this world because it is just easier to choose the beast. And he's writing to them to tell them, don't, resist it. Their pastor is writing them to say, I know how hard it is. I have been tortured. They tried to kill me and failed. They've thrown me in prison. I know how hard it is. But don't give up. Don't give up. What do you benefit if you sell your soul? This is why it's so hard to be his disciple in the midst of a world that is coming to its end, that is filled with evil and chaos. This world should not make sense to the Christian. That's a good sign that you're marked with Christ. So next, it tells us that its number is 666. Now, there are a couple ways to understand this. Um, One of them does seem to pretty directly point to Nero, a Caesar who reigned the Roman Empire from 54 to 68 AD. And it would make sense because he was the absolute worst. Um, There are some people who argue that 666 is a code that spells out Nero's name using Greek letters as if they were numbers. And it does, and I'll show you how in just a second. And maybe that's what John is saying. Maybe he's saying to the first Christians, it would have made sense if he said, if you want to see someone who's embodying this mark of the beast, if you want to see somebody who's embodying everything this unholy trinity represents, look at Nero. You all know who he is. Look at Nero because he's just the worst. (laughs) So let me show you how this works uh, just for fun. Um, Ancient languages didn't have numbers. This is pre-modern math as we know it. So for Greek and Hebrew, there was a practice called gematria, and it assigns a number value to each letter in the alphabet. Now, because you don't know Greek and Hebrew, it's just easier to show you what it would look like if we did this with English. So for the English alphabet, the ones are assigned to letters A through I, the tens place assigned to letters J through R, 
and the hundreds place assigned to letters S through Z. So when you apply this technique to the name Nero Caesar in Greek, it equals 666. Now here's what's interesting. Uh, some of your Bibles will tell you, there will be a footnote that'll say, in some manuscripts, the number is not 666, it's 616. Well, if you do this same thing to Nero's name, but not in Greek, instead do it in Hebrew, guess what it equals? 616. Uh, it's fun if you want to take a picture of that or I can send it to you. It's fun to figure out the number of your own name. Uh, the number of my name is pretty low. It's 113. I don't know what that says about me, but um, I actually don't want to know. I'm just going to move on. <laughs> But we know that this gematria was a common practice. There's a carving they found in Pompeii that says this, I love her whose number is 545. <laughs> you didn't realize the sermon on the mark of the beast would be so romantic, did you? So some teenager back in the day wrote the secret name of the girl he had a crush on, and he used this technique. But remember what I said, John didn't give us this number to decode the name of an individual antichrist who would usher in the end of the world. You wouldn't be able to figure out a girl's name if all you had was the number 545. It's much harder to do it the other way. So that's not the point. He's simply saying, if you want to see someone who embodies everything the unholy trinity represents, just look at Nero. I would argue that if John wrote Revelation to us, maybe he wrote it back in the 40s, perhaps he would have told us that the number of the beast was 515 because that's the number of Adolf Hitler's name if we use this in English. They're not the only embodiments of evil in history, but they're two really good examples of it. Now that might be part of what John's trying to say, but I think there's a much more helpful explanation, one that's a lot easier to calculate. The number 660 and six, it's not meant to be read as a number at all. It's a symbol. What is six not? It's not seven. And seven is the number of perfection, God's complete perfection. Six is close. In simple math, it's as close as you get. But it is not seven. Six, 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 three times, telling us clearly evil is pretending to be God, but it is not God, it never will be God, no matter how many times it tries to convince you otherwise. Three sixes in Revelation is telling us that evil is completely incomplete. It's completely imperfect. That its goal is to imitate, to impersonate, to try to become your God rather than the one true God. But as one author says, he says 666 reminds us that evil is failure upon failure upon failure. It will never win. And that's why it is not worthy of your worship. It's not worthy of your allegiance because it is a liar and it is a complete and total failure. So there's one simple truth that I hope that you hear today. Evil is an imposter. It's an ape. It relies on almost truths to manipulate you and to convince you to give to it your complete allegiance rather than giving your allegiance to Jesus. 
And that means that evil is not always obviously evil. Sometimes it masquerades as being a little bit good, just enough to get you to buy in. And we're gonna see how that plays out next week in two earthly institutions in particular, in both politics and religion. You can see why I put that off a week. (laughs) But this truth, that evil is an imposter, that it's deceptive, and that it's telling us almost truths, is really an important warning for us, especially today. Because we are experiencing this in a unique way. All Christians have had to deal with this throughout history, but we are dealing with this in a very unique way. You see, we have access to more knowledge and more information right now than at any other time in human history. When 24-hour news began in the 90s, and then with the advent of the internet, and now today with social media, we very literally have the tree of knowledge of good and evil at the fingertips of almost every human on the planet. We have access to all the information we could ever want, more information than we could ever consume. What we don't always have is the wisdom to know what we're supposed to do with it. You see, without getting deep into this early, early story, again, the reason that God told Adam and Eve not to eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it wasn't because he wanted to keep knowledge from them. He gave them brains. It wasn't to keep information away from them. The reason was simple, and I think it's obvious. Having the knowledge of God without the wisdom of God to know what to do with that knowledge is a curse. Adam and Eve were cursed because they had taken the knowledge of good and evil, but they didn't have the wisdom of God so that they could tell the difference between the two. And that is the point having access to this information about what's good and what's evil, but being unable to tell the difference between the two, it is a curse. And we are seeing that play out today. We are losing our ability to discern the difference between what is good and what's evil, what's true and what's a lie. We don't know what we can trust to be true anymore. And we find ourselves agreeing to partial truths, And then letting them take us down these trail, just meandering nonsense. And the only reason that these trails pull us away from the truth is to pull us away from the truth. Ultimately to convince us to abandon our search for the truth altogether. And that is exactly what evil capitalizes on. That's exactly how we are deceived. That is why it's so hard to be a disciple of Jesus in the midst of a world that is being convinced that there is no truth. We live in a culture that believes that truth is relative, that there is no absolute truth. That's the product of evil. That is not the work of Christ. And y'all, this has to stop. This dragon is winning the war by using information against us. It's ultimately using information to turn us against us. Potentially using this information to turn us away from Jesus and toward the darkness completely. And it has to stop. Now look, we can't control what's happening in the world, but we can control what's happening in the church. And as the church, we can no longer allow ourselves to continue to be deceived. 
We can't allow this imposter to, con- this imposter to continue to tear us apart. To tear us apart inside and to tear us apart in relationship with each other. We have to pray for wisdom, pray for the ability to discern what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's false, what's good and what is evil. Somebody asked me in a class on Wednesday night, they said, well, how do we do this? How how do we protect ourselves from partial truths, from almost truths? How do we protect ourselves from these lies? And I think there are a couple practical things that you can do. Um, Maybe a fast from social media would be helpful for some of us. I'm actually doing that right now, and to be honest, it's amazing, (laughs) it's life-giving, and I probably will never go back. Maybe for others, it's a fast from cable news. Maybe that would be helpful. A good friend from our retired men's Bible study, he a few weeks ago said that he can tell that cable news is taking him down a way of thinking that's impacting the way he lives and it's not good. So instead, he's watching the History Channel and he's watching people rebuild old trucks. You know what? Watching people rebuild old trucks is probably a lot more productive than what we hear 24 hours a day on the news. I mean, how many more times do we have to hear somebody else's opinion about what we just watched with our own eyes? How many more perspectives do we need to take in? How might that be distracting us from the truth? So those things might be helpful, it's fine, but there really is only one answer and it has, it has two parts. We turn to Jesus and we do that through scripture and through prayer. And that's it. That's why here we are so committed to becoming biblically literate and spiritually formed because without understanding scripture and without an active communicating relationship with God through prayer, y'all, without those two things, we are easy marked. We're easy marks. We're easily manipulated and we become at risk of being marked with a name other than the name of Jesus. This is very important. You don't have to know Hebrew and Greek to know scripture. All you have to do is start reading it and do it regularly. I have been reading it in Greek and Hebrew and there's still so much that I learn every single time I open it up. My grandmother, who read the Bible cover to cover every year for 50 years, she died not knowing everything that was in scripture. There's always something for us to learn. The point is the habit and the practice of regularly turning to scripture and letting that guide how we understand what's happening in the world. Sadly, I think sometimes we have it the other way around. And within the church, we need to correct that. We turn to scripture, we turn to God in prayer, and we do that together. Amen? There is a way out, but we have to trust Jesus to do it. Let's pray. Father, be present with us as we wrestle with all this, as we wrestle with what's happening in the world, as we wrestle with what's true and what's not, Help us to trust that you are the truth, you are the way, you are the life. And we can rely on you to guide us through whatever chaos and nonsense is around us. Be with us. We pray all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at www.fpc-kingwood.org. Our services are available on our website and find us on Instagram at FPC underscore Kingwood. We'll see you next time.